everyone, it's Lou Rosenfeld, and uh, it is April of 2015. It's a beautiful spring day here in Brooklyn, and uh, I'm talking with, who am I talking with? Who's there? Indy Young. How are you, Lou? Hi, I'm doing great. How's the view of Mount Tam today? It's pretty lovely. Indy always makes me suffer. She lives in the most beautiful place in the world, in San Rafael, California. I only make you suffer during the winter time, Lou. That's right, but I'm going to talk with her anyway, and you guys get to, to sit in. Indy Young is, uh, among other things, famous for uh, being one of the co-founders of Adaptive Path, a groundbreaking UX agency that was recently acquired by Capital One. Indy wrote a book known as uh, Mental Models. She's the uh, formulator of that methodology, and that happened to be the first book that my company, Rosenfeld Media, published. I'm so happy to have worked with her on that. And now a new book, Practical Empathy, which is one of my all-time favorite titles of, of any book, whether we published it or not. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about empathy today. And so why don't we start with a, kind of a an odd question for you, Indy. Why is everyone talking about empathy today? It seems like it's on everyone's minds, and I almost get the feeling we've, we've reached peak empathy, but I have a feeling you might disagree. <laughs> yeah, you know the, that synchronous sort of thing that happens when you end up at a gathering or a conference where it seems like everybody's been individually thinking and working on the same sort of thing. That's definitely true of empathy for the past several years. Lots of people have been trying to work on it, and it comes out in different forms. I've seen a lot of people trying to do company culture sort of things and team building sort of things. The thing that I've been working on ever since, gosh, uh, probably the mid-90s, has been trying to understand the real thinking, the real uh, life, you know, problem solving that people go through before we actually design something for them. So that is uh, what the, forms the basis of that first book that I wrote for you. And it's also what forms the basis of the second book, Practical Empathy. The reason why I as never associated it with the word empathy before was that I hadn't had all those talks with you, Lou, over lunch and brunch and <laughs> over the years trying to figure out how to uh, put my next book out there. I thought it was all about, you know, collecting data. And it wasn't until you came up with that title, Practical Empathy. I think that was your genius. Oh, no wonder why I like it so much. <laughs> Exactly. It wasn't until you uttered those words that it all clicked together. I'm like, yeah, that's what I've been doing for the entire career. It's all about um, sort of a frustration with jumping to conclusions, a frustration with, hey, I've got this killer idea, let's go implement it. And, and a, a frustration with people who delude themselves into taking risks that they shouldn't. Like, oh yeah, everyone's going to use this app that I'm making and I'm going to like, you know, be the richest person on earth because of it. <laughs> well, but Indy, I mean, not everyone is kind of at that extreme, right? I mean, a lot of us, especially those of us who are involved in design professionally in one way or another, we, we are often there because in effect we're humanists of a sort and we do care. And we do think we have empathy, and maybe we take it for granted, but what, what are we doing wrong? What's the gap in terms of how people involved in design uh, understand empathy? 
Well, certainly. It was those extremes that actually kicked me in the butt and made me write the book. If those extremes didn't exist, then we'd all just be having conversations like this and the book wouldn't need to exist. But I think that there's partially a problem in that we aren't taking the time to do proper discovery of how another person is thinking before we go out and make designs for them. We'll you know, go off and make personas based on each individual around the table and their own history as opposed to real people. Um, we'll go out and create scenarios or experience maps based on the idea of a person after maybe one day of a ride-along or something. Um, so we aren't necessarily doing the depth that we could go to. A lot of the interview work that we'll do stays sort of at that very uh, self-limiting state where we are only asking questions from the perspective of the thing that we're trying to build and not letting the person that we're, say, riding along with just sort of freeform tell us everything that's going through their mind as they're trying to achieve this particular intent of theirs. We're forcing them to, to interact with us through our lens in, uh, in a way, right? It isn't that we're doing it on purpose. It's just the way that the techniques run. They lend themselves to focusing on the solution or the idea that we have and it's just so easy for us to stick with that to to really approach it from well how are we going to solve this problem because we're being paid we're employees maybe we're not being paid that much maybe it's a startup i don't know but essentially we keep our employee hat on a little bit too much and try to maybe please our boss or something like that or please our teammates, or show our teammates that, that we can really understand this and solve this problem. It's all about making things better. Um, and we don't give ourselves sort of that space to, to say, well, wait, what, what's better? What's <laughs> I know my better, but what's that other person's better? And where are the patterns through all these other people? Well, one of the things that I, I think you did in mental models was help people methodologically do a better job of getting past assumptions and kind of a self-centered or product-centric uh, approach to making design decisions. But I, I think in this book, you, you're kind of coming at that from a, a, maybe a slightly different direction, right? Uh, maybe a bit more of a focus on listening specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I tried really hard to do in this book, actually two things, so I tried to set it up so that it doesn't, it isn't research. In fact, I only use the word research, I think, in one footnote. I don't want to scare people off. I really want people beyond our community to embrace this. So I didn't want it to sound like something academic or something that you have to be, you know, really experienced at or have a PhD to do. And the other word I didn't want to use was the word design, simply because design is so uh, sort of associated, maybe incorrectly, with an idea, with implementing something, with building or creating or tweaking. And what I wanted to do was do the pause and teach people sort of to uh, recognize when they are making that leap, jumping to that conclusion, or 
even running with an assumption. It's really hard to recognize when you are running with an assumption. And so what I wanted to do was give people a way to stop themselves and like sort of feel around and say, okay, wait a minute, what are the assumptions that I might be running with? And if those assumptions are risky, let's go find out the real way people think as opposed to the assumption. But if those assumptions are okay, it's not much risk, then okay, fine, run with them. But at least we're making that decision with a little bit of clarity. I definitely see how what you're talking about, you know, even if we, we avoid words like research and design, is going to be really critical for practitioners to be exposed to. But let's, as you're suggesting, I think, let's move up the chain a bit and think about how people who are in uh, more decision-making roles or managerial roles, whether they're managing a team and hiring designers or researchers or people even higher up the chain potentially who are business leaders or business decision-makers can learn from practical empathy. Well, there's, there's two directions we could take this. And I think I'm going to take it in a, the more interesting direction at this point because I have a good story. And that is, I was working with Code for America. Code for America, if you don't know, is a group that, um, I think it's a bunch of volunteers, and they team up with various civic departments, governmental departments, around the United States to offer their assistance in solving some problem, some way for that department. And usually they're really small problems. Like one group was teamed up I think it was Miami-Dade County building permits office and you know how can we make that a better experience for people or so, you know something like that and they're they're coming up with an app or whatever. The interesting story was that I was chatting with the gal who's leading the team that's interfacing with the Vallejo Police Department. And the police department has, you know, as their number one goal for the year, avoid a Ferguson. Uh, and everybody's very earnest about that, and yet they discovered, this team, this team of fellows discovered that in practice there's uh, a lot of difficulty and a lot of confusion about how to make it happen. The difficulty lies in the fact that they've got fewer police now than ever. The city went through bankruptcy, and they feel as if they can't respond to all the calls, and so they're doing this sort of black and white thing that you know, yes, we'll help you, no, we won't help you, and it makes a citizen who calls in maybe with, say, a noise complaint feel as if maybe the noise has to escalate until there's actual violence and blood, and then the police will come. <laughs> so the citizens are upset and feeling unsupported, and the police are like, hey, you don't understand, you know, we, we really can't respond to everything, and, and so there's this divide that foments the situation that could turn into a Ferguson, right? So she's all like, yeah, we want to, you know, we've, we've done a ride-along, we're going to do another ride-along, um, we've gathered all this data, she was telling me all the stories, and we want to make, you know, some sort of app that'll help them be more efficient about responding to calls. And I'm like, is that really the problem? From the way that she was describing things, it wasn't the problem. The problem was the attitude, the perceived attitude and the probable attitude of the way that the police officer and the dispatcher were handling calls or handling interactions with a citizen. 
the next time they're going out on a ride along, they're going to start taking notes about what the perceived attitude was on the part of like the citizen and the probable attitude or thinking, right, on the part of the cop and try to sort of see if there isn't any respectful way to show the people who are doing the interactions that really it's just a perception difference. And that if a few more words are added to the interaction that explain what perceptions are, also adding in some gray area between the black and the white, yes, we can help you, no, we can't help you. How about, you know, we can't help you, we need your help to solve this. You, here's how some other people have solved it. Or you have a community meeting in your neighborhood, maybe they can help you solve it, right? So just additional words. She's very excited about this, and then she's like, now wait a minute, that's not an app. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's, it isn't necessarily an app to make things more efficient, but it could be an app to let that gray area come out. Like, here's how other people have solved it, and here's the schedule for the community meetings. Indy, that's absolutely amazing, and especially that you bring it up on, I think, day two or three of the conflagration happening right now in Baltimore. Um, obviously has um, a lot of roots in miscommunication and, and misunderstanding. And I think what's also really fascinating is it's not just necessarily that you need to change a, a design or an app or create a new product or, or a service. Sometimes what we have right now may be functionally just fine. The systems that we have in place or the products or services, it's just a humanizing past needs to be taken at them. And uh, I like to think you're offering quite a lot of help to people who seriously want to, to see things improve through empathy. So I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, any last pieces of wisdom or advice you want to offer people listening in? Uh, one of the questions I get asked a lot about empathy is, uh, can anybody learn empathy? <laughs> and uh, the last group that asked me that was a group of law students. I think they were grad students in law and they'd already been out in law firms for a year or two doing uh, some work. And apparently, <laughs> apparently they work with some very narcissistic people. This isn't true of absolutely everybody in a law firm, certainly. But when the student asked me that question and described the scenario, my answer has always been the same. Yeah, there are people who can't learn it, and those are the, the people who can't think sort of past themselves. There, there's not really any way to change that person. The only way to deal with it is to give yourselves some tools to um, not get too hurt by a scenario like uh, you could get involved with if you were trying to change the way that person works, um, or even just to keep yourself amused. This guy, he was his scenario was just <laughs> pretty dismal. And I think he's just counting the months until he gets out of the, that firm in particular. And, and so I advised him to just amuse himself by, um, you know, sort of categorizing everything that comes out of that person's mouth that he was complaining about. <laughs> like, oh yeah, there's a, a defense statement, there's a self-aggrandizing statement, there's an explanation, there's a statement of fact. <laughs> I love it. Uh, organizational right. therapy through librarianship. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's kind of sad because you're not going to 
be able to make empathy work in a scenario like that. That said, in most scenarios, you're not necessarily dealing with somebody who is that uh, self-absorbed. And so there is a chance to like, you know, make yourself a little bit vulnerable by saying, hey, I realize I don't understand the way that you're thinking. I realize I don't understand how you made these decisions and I want to understand. And by opening yourself up to the other person that way, by saying, hey, I'm not smart enough to know telepathically why you're doing this, then that person has either a chance to explain or a chance to sort of smash you a few times. Um, but eventually they will probably reciprocate and explain, and, and that starts the basis of collaboration. Well, Andy, uh, um, I never come across people that self-absorb because I'm, I'm too busy in my own stuff. <laughs> I, 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 we'll, we'll end it there. Uh, there's so much more we could talk about, but good news is there happens to be a fantastic book Again, Practical Empathy just came out a, a few months ago, and uh, you can purchase it from rosenfeldmedia.com, as well as uh, Amazon, and O'Reilly sells our digital books uh, as well. We hope you'll have a chance to have a look at Indy's work soon. Thanks for listening in, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Indy. Bye.